All right, turn to Isaiah chapter 42. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 42, this is part five in our Chosen in Christ series. And today's message is entitled, Christ, Elect and Precious. Speaking of Christ himself, being the elect one and precious to the Father. And that's what it's going to uh, talk about here in this text. In the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring out justice to all the nations, or the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking wick, some versions say flax, it's referring to a wick, shall he not quench. He shall bring out justice to truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, until he set justice in the earth. And the coast shall wait for his law. So says Jehovah. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, spreading out the earth and its offspring. He who gives breath to the people on it, on the earth. And spirit to them who walk in it. I, Jehovah, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and keep you. And I give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Jehovah, that is my name. King James says, Lord, many other versions says, Lord, Jehovah and Lord, same thing. And my glory I will not give to another, nor praise to graven images. Behold, the formal things that have come to pass and the new things I declare before they happen, I cause you to hear. So I want to deal with that part in there about the fact that the Father chose Christ, and that is the topic of this message. There is a lot of good stuff, as you well saw, nine verses. That is pretty juicy, but we're going to try to stick to uh, just that part about Christ being the elect of the Father. So far, uh, part one of the series was just an introduction talked about what we were going to talk about. Uh, I've since found some other things to add to the list of those things. Part two was a kind of a general overview of the character attributes of God. We had mentioned that we would be stressing God's sovereignty, of course, uh, more than anything out of his, all of his attributes. Part three was the biblical fact that God only chose some people to save. He didn't choose all people to save. And part four, the last one we did was God's divine sovereign rights. He is, he has the right to exercise his sovereignty because he has it and he is God. That's pretty basic, really. Uh, last week, we, I kind of did a different message, not in our series. Um, so when we looked at this character attribute of God's sovereignty, his divine right to exercise his sovereignty, we easily proved that he was sovereign. And then we looked at statements by him toward others concerning that divine right to exercise that sovereignty. We talked about sovereignty and creation. He didn't counsel with anybody. He didn't look down through the future to counsel that way, to see if it would be okay with them. They, they weren't there. We weren't there. We just read a part of 
one of the latter verses of our text today said he stretched out to heavens and he did all these things. Nobody was around. Um, we looked at uh, sovereignty of God in creation, in providence, the fact that he not only created things, but he runs everything. He's got his hands in everything. He's, he's actively, by him, all things consist. They stick together. And when he wants to turn them loose, he'll turn them loose. We talked about weather, health, life, everything. I kill and I make alive. I'm God and there's none else. I wound, I heal. I'm, I'm, I'm this one. It's your only option. All other gods are fake. And then, of course, our topic, more specifically, is salvation. So, we saw God is sovereign in salvation, specifically our uh, in election is what we've been examining. And also, a sub-part of that point is he also is sovereign in condemnation in reference to the non-elect, which is really hard for uh, most people to swallow. We showed that... Uh, Works righteousness, conditional salvationists, those people that have a grace plus works salvation, which is no salvation at all. It's not grace once you add works for salvation. That they all reject the sovereignty of God in salvation. All of them, without exception, reject the sovereignty of God in salvation. It takes their pride out, their control, their bragging, their boasting, their merit. It takes all that out, strikes at the root of their pride. It's offensive to them, and they have to, to make their system work, they have to dissect God, take parts of him out, and especially his sovereignty. And when you take sovereignty away, you've created a God, a God small g, that is not God. And it is no different than, than the atheist, because there's only one God available. I'm God and there's none else. And when you take his sovereignty away, you've taken away God. That's not the only attribute uh, false religion takes away, but that's a, that's a biggie. So we talked about how that the atheist we saw in the, the one that claims to be an atheist is lying to himself and all he's doing is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And that's what the Armenian, the Pelagian, the semi-Pelagian, all the conditional false religions, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They, they fight against and deny the sovereignty of God all the while knowing that God is sovereign, but hating the fact that God is sovereign. If you say, I will not have that one rule over me. They're rebels. They hate God. And then the little catchphrase, I mean, I didn't invent it. I heard it somewhere else. It's, it's pretty easy, pretty obvious to see. He's God and we're not. That kind of expresses God's sovereignty. We, we talked about God as sovereign in that he does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to who he wants, when he wants. He just, he's out of control. He's out of our control. So today, uh, we're going to, we're going to, and this is very hard to do uh, chronologically. It's impossible for me. I mean, my brain is a pea brain compared to some of the people I read after and maybe some of the people I talk to that are way smarter than me and, and trying to keep this on track and, and in order, I believe it all. But to try to present it in a organized fashion, cascading from start to finish without being consistent in the way that I place the order because of overlap, because of my forgetful mind, for me, it's impossible. But we're going <laughs> to, if we forget something, we'll go gather it back up later and present it, and you'll still get it. And by the time we're done, we're going to forget things anyway that we could have said because God, you know, you know how big he is. And there's always something to be said more about any subject about who God is. So we're going to be talking about the subject today that deals with the choice or election of the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father. And this is related to so many subjects. That's, that's the, the good problem that we have, that this topic 
is spread out and related to so many other things. It's, of course, in reference to God's decree, his purpose, his plan, his scheme, his will, his pleasure, all these things, his, his counsel, and it's related to his covenant, and we're going to be covering his decree and his covenant, his covenant of redemption. Some people call it the eternal uh, covenant of grace, all kind of different names. We'll define it as we go. And it deals with uh, aspects or titles of who Christ is uh, as mediator, Messiah, as, as Lord. And it has to do with him being appointed by the Father in the covenant as representative and head and surety of his people. So before we get too engrossed with God's people being elect, we're going to talk about Christ as head, representative, and surety concerning him being the elect one, and we are elect in him. And we know, of course, um, we're even loved in Christ. So we want to talk about you know, eventually how that the Father, how the Father loves Christ before we talk about how that he loves us in Christ. And we've, we've talked about that over the years and months. There's so many other things connected, you know, Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And these have to do with the eternal Son of God reaching back into eternity past and his qualifications as he comes and takes on flesh. So, it's going to involve the incarnation, you know, him taking on a body. And we're going to read some stuff about that. But it all boils down to, uh, to this. Uh, verse 4, it says, and we will not divorce the subject from this. He will not fail. We stress this in, in all of our messages, and we show that today, and for thousands of years, there has been a, a counter-message to our message. There's been a counter-message to the truth of a God, small g, that has failed. You go to churches in this area, I'm not even counting the, the ones that don't claim to be Sovereign Grace Calvinistic Reformed. Churches that will not stand up boldly, and their members will not, don't even have a clue that this is actually a different God who did not do this. Who, who, the one who failed is not this God. And we can't say that it's the same. It's not just a different perspective. You just see a little bit different. You'll grow, and when you do, you've got the cherry on top, and um, maybe you should go to seminary. And if you get the right teacher, come on now, this is, this is easy. And we'll see along the way that, you know, the God that we're presenting is one who did not fail. And it's not, and when I say that, it's not just about sovereignty. It's about righteousness. The text I read talked about righteousness. The text that Eric read talked about righteousness. It's all about means to an end. He's declared the end from the beginning, and it's about glorifying himself in reference to the righteousness of Christ. So we're not divorcing the gospel from God. We're not divorcing God from his truth. We're not divorcing Christ from his atonement. We're not divorcing the head from the heart. <laughs> we go, I mean, you could name a hundred different things that false religion divorces to cloud the issue, make it mysterious, talk about paradox, talk about it's not my job to uh, explain it. If I, if I don't explain it, I need to step down immediately and find somebody, even if I have to pay them or you have to pay them. To explain it. Explaining is of utmost importance. And we do it with the truth, the word of truth. 
Look at verse 1, Isaiah 42, 1. Notice the father talking about his son, and notice 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I'll count these six things that I have mysteriously left out right now concerning who is saying what about themselves. Behold, number one, my servant. The father's talking about the son. Whom I uphold. That's number two. My, number three, elect. In whom my, number four, soul delights. Number five, I have put, number six, my spirit on him. He shall bring out justice to the nations. Do you see, do you see the emphasis here already? And, and I, I hope that that helped to do that. Because you can fly through that and just notice, well, it's the Father talking about the Son. We see ultimate sovereignty is God the Father. So God the Father in his sovereign decree and covenant has purposed to glorify himself by, in, and through his eternal Son, the Word of God, the living Word of God, who is, as we've said before, is the logic of God. He communicates to us who the Father is. God the Father is eternal, all-knowing, all-wise, and in that, he has a purpose. And, and let's go back to just a second, just to readdress it. He shall not fail. Look at the plans, quote-unquote, of the other gods that are talked about in pulpits right now this morning who end up failing, really, from the beginning and the middle and the end. But really, in the end, you make your conclusion. All of it failed, right? If one out of three failed, it's still a failure. We know the whole mess failed. We see that. We counter that. We show the God who did not fail. And in knowing that, we point out his attributes that kept him from failing. Omniscience is all-knowing. Um, his, he's all-wise. He's all-powerful. All these attributes of, co- of God ensure that not just he will not fail, he cannot fail. Okay? So, uh, I said that to be kind of redundant, that we don't separate this God that we're talking about from what he does. You see a God that failed, you identify him, what God, which God is it that failed, and you say, it's that one. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting super basic here to, to make sure everybody's on board. You don't say, well, he failed, but but he's okay over it. No, it's over. He failed. That's not the one we're talking about. We're talking the one who did not fail, and it's connected to his character attributes. So as we look through the scripture, the word of God, at God's character attributes, they have to be non-failing, all of them, every single one of them. Now, now, I know I said that's super basic, but you've seen it yourself. You've seen people drop that ball and cheat on that idea and still say, but this message over here is qualifies as a gospel, even though, I mean, you, you with me? <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, his eternal, all-knowing, all-wise Sovereign, powerful purpose. Put forth his son. This action of the father putting him forward in the spotlight. In preeminence. And choosing him. He is the one that he's talking about here. Mine elect. Whom my soul delights. 
Some versions say precious. He chose him, the one who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's whom he chose to choose. Right? So Christ as the God-man, I told you that this is eventually going to connect to the incarnation. Him as the God-man is the one that is the only qualified one to fulfill this purpose. This eternal overarching purpose of the Father being glorified in the death of his Son. It's the only one that could do this. So Christ, his condescension, in other words, his, he was up high on the throne and he came down, he stooped down in his humility and he took on flesh, the incarnation, are in view as part of this whole thing because that is the eventual means to get to the cross and the chief glory, the focal point, the magnification of the glory of God and all his character attributes is seen in the cross. Bar none. That's it. That's the peak right there. Is what happened between the Father and Son at the cross. So it is a means to his end purpose. Him declaring the end from the beginning, of course. The only one that can do that. The only one who did do that. And because it is a purpose, just using that word, it automatically includes means and it excludes the idea that it's random or fatalistic because it has a purpose. And his purpose is not a mystery. He states, we've come to the conclusion as you take the sum of all scripture, he's purposed to glorify himself in the death of Christ. We see that all over the place. If you just gather it up, and we do all the time, we can see that clearly. So this purpose that uh, includes his counsel, it includes uh, the whole idea of his will connected to his purpose. In other words, what we're talking about takes thought, the, the thought of God. And that's wrapped up in the wisdom and word of God. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ is the logic of God. He is the wisdom of God. In him are hidden all treasures of wisdom in Christ. This is who he is, not just what he does. He does what he does because of who he is. And this purpose, it wasn't reactionary, uh, but it was God-driven. It was his own sovereignty that included all the means necessary. It included evil. It included the fall of Satan and his angels. It included the sin of Adam. It encapsulated that. God planned and purposed that on, on, on purpose wisely to get to his end. You're going to have Christ die for sin when there's no sin? Makes sense. So, since God rules over all of His creation through providence, it included everything without exception to reach that end. And He purposed it in Himself for His own glory to get that done. He's not scrambling, He's not reacting, He's not wondering, He's not worrying, He's not wishing, He's not trying. He did not fail. He isn't your co-pilot, right? You ain't driving. <laughs> You're not driving that plane. Get that idea out of your mind. Now, when I say something like that, everybody smiled, you know. But some people would say, well, you're a fatalist. You're saying we're not involved at all? Not in salvation. Not in God's wise purpose that he came up with, not me. 
we're engaged, okay? We're engaged in the process because by faith we see the truth that he does it all. And we react to that by joyous emotion and experience because of what is already finished before we're born, right? He's God and you're not. That, right, you know, that goes with that co-pilot thing. There's none else. If you don't believe this God, that's it. Yeah, you're in trouble. This is the only one available. Warm up. Warm up to this one right here. What else does the scripture say? It says, stand still and see, as by faith, the salvation of the Lord. Which is the opposite of the conditional gospel which includes yourself as doing something to finally make it in the end. So Christ is the one who expresses the Father. He communicates the Father to anybody that hears. He is the one that does this. He's the only one that can. He represents the Father. He speaks for the Father. That's what a mediator does. The Father needs a mediator to deal with us. Not only us needing a mediator, the Father has to have a mediator. Otherwise, he, otherwise he would just consume us. Uh, we would not understand anything unless it was for Christ, the living word, the, the logos, the logic of God. We would just be counting on our senses and our mystical experiences and you know where that gets us it gets us turning back into ourself looking at ourself wondering and wishing and hoping and having anxiety and not ever saying that we can nail anything down for sure maybe hope to someday understand something but probably not that's not the way that it works in god's salvation so christ is the only mediator and as mediator between God and man, he is the prophet and the truth. And he teaches through means of doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. Listen to this verse, 2 John 1.9. Everyone transgressing and not abiding in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. So this one who represents God, speaks for God, is the mediator between God and man. He speaks the doctrine of truth from God, and you have to agree with it. And if you don't come bearing it, having it, believing it, even loving it, you don't have God. You don't know God. So these are some things, they're basic things we always talk about. So many people can't stand hearing them. We have fallen in love with these ideas. They have helped our lives. It's not just something that's just cool to know. I mean, it affects our life. It affects our growth. So what we're, get, what we're getting at is about this idea of authority. The Lord Jesus Christ has the authority to, to do these things because of who he is and as directed by the Father. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read some things there. And while you're turning there, let me quote one verse of John 6. Start to give you the, some idea about this thing of giving authority for Christ to say and do what he does. John 6, 38. I came down from heaven. There's that, that condescending coming down, stooping down in humility. Not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So there he's sent by God, appointed and anointed by the Father. That's the idea of being uh, Messiah, uh, the word apostle. He's called apostle in the scriptures, at least one place I know of. That, that's the sent one. Messiah is the anointed one. He's the, the Christ. He's the Father's Christ. 
So he has the authority. And when it says not to do my own will, it, he, what he's not saying is, you know, I, I disagree with the Father, but I'm just going to put up with it for a while. That's, I, we know he's not saying that. Some skeptics would read the scripture and say, yeah, he's just like, he's just not getting along here in this whole job. It's like my son, when I tell him all the things that I want him to do, the arguments coming back against what I'm saying, not Christ. Their will is in harmony. <clears throat> he came to do the will of the Father. He delights to do. He said that in another place. I delight to do his will. Hebrews 10, look at verse 1. For the law which has a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of the things, appearing year to year with same sacrifices. Just talking about the Old Covenant. Which they offered continually. They are never, notice that, never able to perfect those that are drawing near or coming to be involved in these sacrifices. Sacrifices did not do the trick. Verse 2. For then... In other words, wouldn't it make sense that if they did not have to be ceased to offer it? I mean, if, the, if it was done, complete, then we wouldn't have to offer them anymore. But every year, he continued, the priests continued to have to offer them because they, didn't, they weren't effectual. They weren't complete. It didn't really satisfy God's law and justice. It only pictured some of what was to happen, which was better. Christ being the priest the sacrifice, the altar, the whole, the whole deal. In the middle of verse 10 there, or the second section there, because the worshipers, when they had been uh, once and for all purged, would have no more conscience of sin, but that didn't happen. The animal blood and that form of priesthood didn't do it, didn't do the trick. Verse 3, but in those sacrifices... There is a remembrance again of sins every year. And verse 4 kind of seals the deal. Redundancy says, for or because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Never happened ever in the history of the universe. It's not even possible. That system doesn't work. And it was set up that way so that the final and only and acceptable sacrifice would come and finish it. Verse 5. And here's, here's what we're getting at, and this is, has to do with the authority um, and the, the mission of Christ. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have prepared a body for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure, because they, they don't work. Right? Then I said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book written to me. The whole thing's written about him. Everything. What did he say in the volume of the book did he come to do? To do your will, O God. The Son talking to the Father concerning this purpose that we were talking about. Above, when he said, sacrifice an offering and burn offerings, an offering for sin, you didn't desire, neither did you have pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Then he said, lo, I come uh, to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, the one that didn't work, to establish the second, the one that did work, the one that Christ did. By, notice this, verse 10, by this will, this will, you, could, you could say purpose, plan, scheme, desire, wisdom, truth, proposition, this, this idea that is true and is congruent and it matches with truth and who I am and what I'm doing. By or purpose, all these things. By this will, we are sanctified 
set apart. So throughout all eternity, this whole, everything that we've talked about so far in the introduction was done to set apart a people in the one who was already set apart, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was set apart himself. He must be sanctified so that we can be sanctified in him. By this will, we're sanctified. And then let's not forget this. This is, <laughs> this is the foundation. Through the offering of the body of Christ. Told you it would in include the incarnation, virgin birth, his body, all of it. Once and for all, once and for all time. As compared to the priesthood that kept going, it, it was not never a finished thing. But this one is done. Once and for all time. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews 5. You know, I always forget something when I'm up here doing stuff. I forgot to turn on the clock. I forgot to turn on the audio. The only audio I'm getting is through this. But I can record audio, convert it to MP3 off the camera. But I just get too excited about stuff. Hebrews 5 and 4. And going back to this idea of authority. And no man, again, contrasting Old Covenant with Christ's meteor of the New Covenant. No man takes this honor on himself. Talking about the Old Covenant priesthood. You just don't pick it up and take it on yourself. It's not a self-appointment. Like, okay, I'm going to be high priest. Can't do that. Certain rules that if you break in the, in the priesthood, when you're doing sacrifices, God will kill you. Right on the spot. He'll kill you. It's not a game. Even in the Old Covenant, it wasn't a game. Which means the New Covenant, as far as accountability and, and carefulness, it's, it's more important and it's more critical and it's more detailed. It's everything. So it's not a game for sure. You see later on in Hebrews that contrast, I think it's in chapter 12, where it, it talks about Back then, he talked to people and the ground shook. Now Christ, chapter 1, verse 1, talks about he talked to us in the prophets, but now in these days he talked to us by Christ. And then it talks about in chapter 12, when he comes, he's not only going to, uh, he's going to shout. He's not just going to speak. He's going to shout. He's not going to just shake the earth. He's going to shake heavens and earth, and everything's going to be wiped out. And the only thing that's going to remain is the stuff that we're talking about here today. The things that you can see by the eye of faith. Invisible, spiritual, eternal things. It's all, it's all, it all ties together. We see in how it's flowing. No self-appointments. Verse 5. So also, just like um, the Old Covenant, it works the same way. So also, Christ did not glorify himself. In other words, he didn't, he didn't take upon himself to choose himself, to self-appoint himself, to be made a high priest. But he who said unto him, Thou art my son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the idea here of begotting, it's, it's a declaring. Because Christ is eternal. It's a declaring, and this is in reference to the counsel, purpose, desire, will, covenant of God. Like, you are the one. I'm putting you out front. I'm declaring you. I'm begetting you in this way. Here, you, you're the one that's going to do this. And Christ didn't fight against it. I want to do it. I can do it. <laughs> I'm not going to fail. He says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we know later on it talks about Melchizedek in this um, book of Hebrews. It talks about in the Old Testament too, but Melchizedek, the idea, he's a type there. 
who had no father, no mother, no beginning or end. We know Christ is the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega. Um, he is the eternal Son of God. And Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. That's what Christ was too. So there's a lot of juicy stuff there, and we're going to roll on. But I brought us there to talk about the authority thing. Christ did not appoint himself. The Father put him out there. John 17, 1. Uh, some other language concerning Christ not appointing himself, but getting authority from his Father. As he, as he submits, the, the Son, there's a subordination involved there in his humility. Of course, he said, I came to do the will of the Father. It's not that he dis ever would disagree with his father, but that's the way this whole thing was set up. That the son would be the go-between, the one doing all the work. The father and the Holy Spirit did not suffer on the cross. The government of salvation was on the shoulders of Christ. He did the work. He did the heavy lifting, as they say. John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes into heaven. Christ, the perfect prayer. He always prays according to the Father's will. He always has his prayers answered. He always speaks the truth in his prayers. He's talking to his Father. He said, the hour has come. It's time. This is, what, this is what the world is created for. The universe was created. This is it right here. Everything, every molecule that's ever been created throughout all history brings us down to this one point in time. Let's get this right here. This is the most important thing that has ever been purposed for and has ever happened and ever will happen in the future or in eternity future. This is it right here. And Christ is praying concerning it. He said, glorify your son. He's talking to his father. Glorify your son so that your son, in other words, me, he's saying, may also glorify you. Even as you, Father, have given him, which is talking about himself, notice, authority over all flesh. He did that in creation, automatically. He did it in providence, automatically. Christ had that, automatically, by virtue of him being the Son of God, equal with the Father, delegated to do the creating, speaking into existence, and he runs that creation, and he has authority over all flesh, elect and non-elect. Notice this. He gets real specific. Given authority over all flesh, that he should give, in other words, I should give eternal life to who? Whoever freely, out of their free will, decides to, based on a condition, receive Jesus, me, into their heart. Because I'm knocking on this side, it's got no handle. They got the handle. That's not what he says. He says, you've given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to all you have given him. That's their subject uh, series that we're talking about. Let's talk about election. He came to give eternal life to all that the Father gave him. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this real quick. This we've read it a bajillion times. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. It matches with John 1, Hebrews 1. The firstborn of all creation. All things were created by him. Those things of heaven. There's things on earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that or so that he might be preeminent in all things. For or because... Don't skip those words. Those words are connecting words from thought to thought. They're not divorce words. They, they keep things together. It's kind of weird, isn't it, how it says, by him all things consist. This is what I'm talking about. The consistency of the truth, it all sticks together. It's not divorced. 
because it pleased the Father, and this is what I'm getting at, the authority, it pleased the Father that in Christ all fullness should dwell. So we continue to see multiple witnesses of the Father giving him authority to do, in, in, in condescence and humility, to do it. Giving him the authority to do it. Philippians 2, you can go ahead and turn there, chapter 2 and verse 5. Seen this a bunch of times, but I want us to see it in, in stress of these ideas that we're trying to emphasize in this part of the message. Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, talking to believers, that was also in Christ. It's, it's getting ready to talk about humility, and, and we need a bunch of this. Right? How humble are you on a scale of 1 to 10? I'm not going to ask. It's just something to think about. If you say you're number 10, then you're not very humble. Anyway, who being, speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, well, he was, right? But made himself, this is the, the action of humility, made himself of no reputation. In other words, he emptied himself temporarily to people around him of his reputation. He didn't go around bragging all the time. You heard it sometimes, direct statements that uh, he's God. He said, I am. And he, he did things. He said things. We can see with the eyes of faith, he, he can only do these things if he's God. And here it seems like he's actually saying he is. Therefore, the scribes and Pharisees took up rocks to stone him because he made himself equal to God. Remember that? And I've always told you I can't get over this because of me, and I think you guys have the same problem. We as human beings would probably, in haste, work things differently to where right off the, out of the gate, we're just like full-blown, 100 mile an hour, first day, I'm God. You question it, boom, you're dead. Who's next? You're dead. You know what I mean? How, <laughs> the work that Christ did here in humility is amazing. And he, and he had to do it. This is the will of God to do it this way. And everything worked out to where in the end, if they knew that they crucified this one, they wouldn't have done it. Right? And this is part of the means of of flying under the radar of human beings that didn't know he was God, didn't know the purpose of him coming to accomplish redemption. And any that are satanic, demonic, whatever, it, all the principalities that were against him, all the, the different groups that conspired together thought they were doing something. <laughs> They're doing something all right. They're doing the will of God. And what they thought was success was failure. That's the foolishness of the cross anyway to people, right? He accomplished his decease. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem to accomplish my decease. It's weird to people, but not to us. He made himself of no reputation. And notice this. He took upon himself the form of a servant. What's our text say? My, behold, my servant. He was a servant to the Father. And was made in the likeness of men. <clears throat> and being in, found in fashion as a man, he, notice again, humbled himself and be, became obedient. That's what servants do. They're obedient. So he became obedient, what? Unto death, even, stresses it, the worst kind of death you can face. Even the death of the cross. And that's loaded right there. It's not just the any other any criminal's death. It's divine justice of the Father exacted upon him, which compares to no other crucifixion that took place. It's not a common crucifixion. <clears throat> I'm just going to read this uh, text and. I might carry this over to next week. I'm pretty sure. Uh, hey, Whitney, can you tell on the thing how long it's been going? 
I'm going to read a text out. If we go ahead and turn, First Peter chapter two, and it's it's Peter's coming out of and and talking about Isaiah 42, what we looked at already, which also in Matthew 12, the same text is talked about, Matthew 12:18. But here we're going to look at uh, Peter's words and um, kind of get an idea. Uh, and Peter adds some stuff under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is good stuff. Verse 1. You know, this kind of goes with uh, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you. That was in Christ. Talking about humility. It's kind of the same stuff here. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, do that. And then do this. Desire the sincere milk of the word as newborn babes so that you may grow in it or by it. So get rid of that other stuff. Put it off. Lay it down. And put something in its place. Milk of the word. If you're familiar with babies, when they're hungry, they want they want food. They want milk. This is the way God's people should be. Staying hungry for the word of God. Milk and meat. The more you grow, the more meat you can devour. Verse 3, if truly you've tasted that the Lord's gracious... That might be a test. We talk about grace, right? We talk about sovereign grace. The only kind of grace there is sovereign grace. The more we see that the Lord is gracious, the more we should have this desire to eat up more of the truth of the word of God. A buffet of the splendor of all the treasures of wisdom in Christ. But those that fight against grace... They're, um, well, they're dead. I was getting ready to say they're mal- malnourished. They're dead. <laughs> they don't have life, so they can't be nourished. Verse 4. For having been drawn to him, speaking of Christ, a living stone, indeed rejected by men, but elect precious with God. Same languages in our text in Isaiah 42. We're not done with Isaiah 42 next week. We're going to go back and get some more of that and deal with this text. But I just want to read through here. You, talking to believers, and nobody else, he's only talking to believers. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, What is the new covenant priesthood for now as compared to the old covenant priesthood? Christ is a high priest. The only priesthood we're involved with now is to offer up what kind of sacrifices? Offer up spiritual sacrifices. And I believe it, I think it's in Romans 12, it says what those are. It's praise. It's worship. It's it's, uh, thankfulness. It's praise. It's all those things concerning worship has nothing to do with killing animals anymore. Has nothing to do with some kind of conditional thing. It's our reaction by faith to his former action. It's not meritorious. It's not conditional. It's what naturally comes out of people that are alive spiritually. So us as priests, we offer up spiritual sacrifices that are accepted to God, how are they accepted to God? What's it say? Through Christ. We're not, we're not self-appointed. We go to God without a mediator. Christ is our mediator, our, our foundation of authority and our um, warrant to go to God is because of Christ. And when we deal with God, we don't deal with ourselves. We deal with him through Christ. 
talks about approaching the throne with boldness in the time of need. Christ is my boldness. In that last day, it says, Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have I not done many wonderful works? I've prophesied in your name. I've cast out demons in your name. Done many wonderful works. They were deceived. What were they? What was their plea? Their plea was what they were doing. The only way you can be bold is before the throne of God in judgment is Christ. I can be dogmatic. I can talk with, with the language that would just is hated by the world, that's most offensive of the world when I say, I am only and always accepted in the beloved. When the Father looks at me, he sees nothing different on my account. Nothing different. The very same, the self-same thing that Christ has. No difference. It's got to be that way. That's the standard. I have to meet the standard. And now with that righteousness imputed to me, it matches, it meets, it satisfies that standard. Anything less, I'm going to be grabbing at straws, pleading something else. If it's not enough, and a false gospel is all about the fact that it's not enough. It's something, I need something more. I, it's, I got to have something more. All the heresies you see in the early church. Yeah, Christ is okay, but you got to be circumcised. Oh, you got to, can't eat pork. Can't shave sides of your beard. Can't have polyester and cotton mixed. Can't cook with a pot that's got milk and meat that gets cooked in the same thing. You got to wear a beanie. I mean, just start. You got to be baptized. You got to count your beads. It's about, it's, it's, you got to do the best you can. It's endless. Those, that list is endless. And, and that list, that endless list will be everybody coming up to the throne, a judgment throne. They'll be spitting those things out. I counted my beads. The next guy, I made the beads. <laughs> I got a patent on the beads. Shouldn't I get more, uh, in closer? Seriously, I mean, it's endless. The ideas of pleas, besides the only plea that is acceptable, complete satisfaction to God's law and justice. Come on in, thy good and faithful servant. You're just like my son. <clears throat> God the Father's not faked out. He made it happen through his son. That's the plan. He's not stupid. Verse 5, and we're about done. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. I already read that, verse 6. Therefore, as it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Again, elect, precious. Christ is that chief cornerstone who is elect by the Father and precious to him, and he who believes on him, this one, shall never be ashamed. Therefore, to you who believe is the honor. But those who are disobedient, he is the stone which the builders rejected. This one came to be the head of the corner. He's the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And a stone, look at this, verse 8. A stone of stumbling. Those that, that don't believe are tripping over him. Right? A rock of offense to those disobeying. In other words, those that don't believe. Who stumble at the word. Notice this. God's in control of this. To which they also were appointed. Who's in control? But, counterwise, something totally opposite of what I just said, that's true, that's better than the wrath and the dishonor that these other people got. But you, talking to believers, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, 
that priesthood is to offer up the uh, spiritual praise. A holy nation, a people for possession, so that you might speak of the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were not a people, but now the people of God. That's some good stuff. I'm going to stop there for this week and try to tie in uh, just these two texts next week. Hopefully, First uh, Peter and Isaiah 42. And uh, there might be some stuff sandwiched in between. I don't know. Any comments or questions? Uh, do you see, uh, as time goes on, the, the clarity and the simplicity as we redundantly go over in more detail and we see more connections? You just can't. It's just there. And we need to, to stay open-minded and challenged. And uh, don't be afraid when people ask you questions to challenge these things that keep getting more simple and more clear. We don't know it all. A question will help us know more. Don't be afraid of a question. It will make you stronger. It won't make you weaker. If it makes you weaker, something's wrong with what you're holding to. Don't be afraid. All right.